0: Um, I'm not sure if you guys watched the Super Bowl and you happen to see this Jeep commercial. Go ahead and and show, just in case you didn't see it, I want you to see it because it's a a pretty awesome song and I want you to just see it, so whatever. This land is your land This land is my land From California To the New York island in the redwood forest the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me. all right so I show you that clip um, mark Siibilia is the artist who did it and apparently it was the most Shazamed song of the night and by Shazam it's that, that app you have on your phone you can throw it up there and you figure out who sings what song and so Excluding the halftime game, that was the most Shazam song that there was. If you include the halftime song show, it was the fourth most Shazam song. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, and it's interesting because a week after this, this Jeep commercial aired, it had over 12 million views. Like a week later. It's, a, it's an amazing, I mean, it's just huge. Um, and what's amazing about this, and if you guys will afford me the opportunity, I'm going to name drop right here. I'm going to name drop. And if you know what name dropping is, it's when you talk about somebody that you know. And well, my wife and I have a particular history with the guy who wrote, who, who sang this song um, on this, this particular occasion. I told you Mark Sebelia is his name, but we go way back. I was a uh, worship leader intern at a small church in Buffalo, New York, and in that church, was a kid named Mark he was a, He was a junior or senior in high school, but an incredible musician, goofy as all get out. I have fo- uh, footage and pictures and dumb stuff that we've done, but my wife and I took a position in Nashville as a full-time youth pastor, and Mark, being the musician that he was, was like, you're going to Nashville? Well, I need to go to Nashville because I'm a musician, and I have to go to Nashville because that's where you go when you want to break out. And so him and his family approached my wife and I and just said, would you guys be willing to let Mark live with you while he tries to do this? Because we're his parents, we're scared to death, we're sending our baby out into the world, and so we said yes. And so Mark lived with us for almost two years, so we walked the road of the starving artist teenager kid before we had any of our own children, Mark lived in our house, and uh, over and over every day, just in his room, the same songs, over and over, trying to kick him out of his room. Go play some shows, man. Do something. Get something together. Get out there and do it. And so we walked that road with him, and for two years got to, got to live life with him in that, in that situation. And then he eventually moved out. And right now, the things that are happening for, happening for him, we always said would happen. We were like, dude, you just stay with it, and man, I'm telling you. And so right now, things are blowing up for Mark Sevilla. And it's an amazing thing to be able to go, hey, I know him. But did you know that everything I know about him, you almost could go on the internet and find out now. The day after this Super Bowl ad aired, this BuzzFeed article showed up. And down on the bottom, here is everything you, te- you need to know about Mark. <laughs> and so they've got like 20 things that they ripped from his Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter feeds, and they just posted it all here. So I could say I know a lot about Mark in this, in this you know, day and age that we live in, but now anybody can say it because of the internets. Google me is a phrase people use now. And so it's amazing what you can learn about somebody on the internet. But see, here's where the game changes, It's a whole different story when I'm saying I know somebody. But to have that somebody say they know me is very different. It's a whole new game. Like it shuts down every word that I might say. But to have somebody confess in public that they know me that just happens to be in the position that Mark is in, we all think is awesome. That's why we name drop. We want people to be impressed by who we know. So I was texting Mark this week and I asked him for a favor. I said, hey, dude, would you make a video that says you know me? <laughs> and so Mark, in his generosity, said, sure, I can do that in between you know, flights and stuff. And so he, he made this video, and he sent it. Here you go. I you know Jason. He's my friend. And that's it. So thanks so much. Uh, I said, get creative. I said, do whatever you want. And that was it. So, but what's amazing about that video... It's, it's, it's weird how the human condition just wants somebody to acknowledge that they know them. And it's, it's, it's interesting because with this, you know, with a person who's in this position of, of knowing a famous person and then for a famous person to say they love us, someone in, a, someone in an authoritative position, somebody in a, in a, in a higher system of, of, of people class knowing us makes us go, wow, that's awesome. But see, the thing about it is I'm even amazed that my wife will acknowledge me in public. Like I am, I I, like whenever my wife says that I'm her husband and that she knows me. Man, I could punch a lion in the face. Like I can do anything when somebody acknowledges me in public. And my wife is like, "That's my husband. I love him. He's mine." That makes me just go, "Yes!" You know, nothing can stop me now. My wife admitted she knows me. You know, I don't know how that all works, but it's amazing. But it's that, that, that to be known and to know somebody, there's a game changer when somebody's willing to admit they know you. Like there's something, there's this safety net that comes with that. There's this I'm known. And I mean, my wife knows everything about me, and she's still willing to admit that she knows me. She knows my ups and my downs and my flaws and my, my stupid stuff, and she still would say that's my husband. And there's something in there that, that gives us strength to know that we are known by someone. That's what we were created for. We were created to know people and to be known. It's the deepest longing of our heart to know that we're known. And what Paul is introducing us to is a game changer in the Galatian church. He's actually talking about not just us knowing God, which we're quick to admit. Like, a lot of us, will be like, I know God, I know God, I know God. But when was the last time you thought about, through faith in Christ, God knows you? And he's willing to admit it. Have you just let that, that thought sink in ever? That through faith in what Christ has done, his finished work, God now says, I know you. I know him. I know her. He's mine. She's mine. And the freedom that comes with that, which is where Paul will eventually get to, because the theme in Galatians is freedom, and it's baffling. What Paul's definition of freedom looks like. In Galatians chapter 4, starting verse 8. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. Well, (laughs) way to be kind to these people, Paul. You know, it's funny that I laughed at it. It's probably not funny that it happened, but I was watching a street preacher and somebody else yelling at each other. You know how they do that here in Nashville? And they were yelling at each other and it was just a ridiculous show of what not to do. <laughs> it really was. And so the street preacher's yelling and this lady's yelling back and this lady's yelling, "I, my God would never do this. My God would never do that. My God would never do this. And I remember the street preacher kind of getting quiet and I was like, oh man, she's got him up against the ropes. She's got him up against the ropes. And he was just being quiet because he was waiting for her to finish. Because he's like, you know what? You're right. Your God would never do that because he doesn't exist. And then they just start yelling at each other. I mean, I'm a bad person for laughing at that. I know I am. But it was one of those conversations where you're like, this is just a terrible picture all across the board. So you might as well laugh or you're going to cry about it because when you recognize that he's proclaiming Christ in this, in this conversation. But what Paul is doing is he's trying to help the Gentiles remember what life was like Before. And then he continues in verse 9. So, okay, so, in light of what I just told you, the gods that you were serving aren't even gods at all. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? Paul is painting the before picture, and he's trying to help them realize the magnitude of going back from the freedom that Christ has brought them. In salvation and faith in him, they are truly set free. You know, this obviously gives him reason to go, what the heck are you guys doing? Why are you going back? And it's not the first time in history that a people group have wanted to go back to a place that was not good for them. If you remember anything about the Old Testament, the Israelites, after one of the most incredible displays of power the world has ever seen, in an entire nation of people walking out of slavery, not at their own fist, but at God's power, walking them into freedom, one month after this incredible rescue, this is where we find the Israelites. Exodus chapter 16. (laughs) If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. (laughs) But he gets better. Listen to why. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. (laughs) Now, the funny part about this is if you read up to this point, There is no sign of starvation going on. There is no sign of people getting sick and dying of disease because they don't have what they need. There is none of that going on at this point in time. So that makes me believe that it really wasn't about their not having for today. They were worried about tomorrow. They were worried about what is going to happen tomorrow because see, in Egypt, we could sit around and there were pots of meat, and we knew where our bread was at. We knew it was in the, you know, it was in the cupboard. Everything was full. We knew we could count on it being there. But today, this whole thing of trusting trust you daily for provision and, and and all this stuff that you're doing, I don't know if we can get with that. I just want to go back to Egypt. And what amazes me about this, because this is where, this is where me, if I'm God, I'm glad I'm not. This is where I rip a hole in the sky and look down at them. Like I rip it open. Violently. You go, what are you thinking? Like to look at him, I'm just, seriously? All right, now, let me just wait, there was this thing about Egypt that wasn't cool. Oh, yeah, that's right. The whip of the Egyptian on your naked backs. Have you forgotten? Like, you were in slavery, you were dead, and death was all around you, but you want to go back to Egypt so you can have some portion control. You want to go back to Egypt so you can control your diet. If I could use hashtags, hashtag face Are you kidding me? Like, seriously. Like, there comes a point where God is so generous to us, it's unbelievable. His patience with us. They just wanted to go back. And so it's funny to me that God's answer to them freaking out about the daily thing is I'm going to make the daily more visible to you now. I'm going to feed you with bread that I literally make it rain with. I'm going to give you manna, and you know about the thing about this manna is it's going to be enough for today. If you try and keep it and hold it on to it so tomorrow, it ain't going to last. I'm going to give you what you need for today. How's that? I'm going to show you that I'm providing for you every day. And so this manna, this cake-like, this bread-like substance, that falls and that the people gather enough for their day. Now, I do want to make sure that we are clear. That the manna is not just a lesson on God's provision for the physical. I think sometimes we run to this manna thing about our physical needs being met. And it is correct. God does meet our needs. Jesus made it really clear that we're to seek him first and he'll take care of everything else. But the manna is not just a lesson on God's provision for the physical. Manna points us to a time when God would provide another bread from heaven that would meet our daily need. This other bread from heaven would meet all of our needs, keep us full, and provide the much-needed rescue. Jesus is this bread. And like the Israelites trusted God to provide what they needed, we trust that Jesus has provided all that we need. Salvation, wholeness, being made complete, because Christ is enough every day. That's what we're tempted to forget. And this is where we find the Galatian church at. But Paul doesn't just say to the Galatians that you now know some bread. He's saying you know the provider of this bread. More importantly, he knows you. And what Paul means by now that you know God, he's not just saying now that you know about God. He's not just saying now that you know about God's existence. He's talking about something beyond that. He's saying now you know the will of God, What Paul's talking about is a shift from this general knowledge of God to particular knowledge of God. And what I mean by that, Psalm 19, 1 and 2, is kind of this general knowledge of God idea that comes out. In verses 1 and 2, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. Nature reveals that God exists, but it does not tell us about Jesus. The the hymn writer um, for that that hymn that we've sung here multiple times, How Great Thou Art. Listen to his words, and I'm not going to sing it for you, just so we're clear. When through the woods and forest glades I wander, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, And hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee: How great Thou art! Asheville loves the creation around her; she really does. If you if you hike with believers that have never been to Asheville, they're like, when they get to the mountains, they're like, "Oh God, this is amazing." And I hate that I'm so sarcastic because sometimes I'm like, it's the same mountain I see every day, you know, it, it's too hot out here. But, but honestly, when you get into nature, you sit there and go, what? Like, especially around fall time, like, I never thought I'd be a leaf peeper, but doggone it, I am. Like, I'm slowing down going, Doreen, look at those leaves, that's beautiful, the beauty of God is everywhere. I never thought I'd be that guy, but I am, and it's weird, okay? And I, and I cry more when I look at my children. I had never thought this would happen. But you've been there. Like, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you've just stood at the Grand Canyon, like if you've ever just stood on a beach at night and just looked out into this massive ocean, Or if you've ever gotten to a place where there's no city lights and you look up into the sky and you see all of these stars, unless you are the most self-absorbed human being in the world, the last thought you're having when you're at that moment is, how great am I? Like, literally, if if you're standing there thinking, how awesome am I at the Grand Canyon? I don't think you have any friends. Like, I really don't. There's something about nature that declares that you and I are not in control. There's something about creation that causes us to go, what in the world is going on? There is something else at work here. There is someone else at work here. I'm not exactly sure how to word it, but something is going on. Jerry Seinfeld, he says it perfectly. He's like, as human beings, we think we're awesome. We think we're so great. But but look at the ocean. He's like, we get in the ocean and the ocean throws us out. And to prove that we're awesome, we try and get back in the ocean, but the ocean just throws us back out. It gets over and over and over. We're just trying to prove to the ocean that we're stronger than we think we are. And the ocean says, no, you're not. (laughs) There's something about creation that reveals to us that we're tiny in the scheme of things. And it's God being faithful to reveal himself in that way. This is a general knowledge, which is why in Asheville, there's a lot of nature worship that goes on. People so taken aback by the beauty and the power of nature, they go as far to say that nature is God. Nature is everything. Nature is very important. Nature gives life. Every decision someone makes based on the opportunity to serve the earth. So there's a lot of creation worship that goes on because people are taken aback that this is bigger than me. This is the general spirituality that you will find in Asheville. It's this understanding that there's something more, and I don't know how to put my finger on it. But in that, it's God revealing himself. So you'll hear people say things like, the universe is, is telling me. You'll hear he, she, or it, or a force, something at work. And rather than Christians going, you guys are crazy, you're nuts, you're the enemy, blah, 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 maybe we just need to go, man, you are so close. You are so close to understanding that there is something bigger at work. And let me show you what's going on. That's why, I, that's why I love the YWAM Asheville vision. This is their logo. I don't know if you've ever seen what they but they're creation encountering the creator. The idea of it's time to look up. Don't look here. But what God has done in the rescue he has sent, Paul did this all the time. He would go into cultures, not making them feel less, but helping them put all the pieces together. Not that this this general revelation of God is in nature. That's what we see, but it doesn't give us all the particulars. It helps us understand that we're small. And so now we begin to try and fill in the gaps. That's what sin does. Sin causes us to try and fill in all the gaps when it comes to being spiritual. Nature reveals that we aren't in control, that we didn't put things in their place, that we are not as strong as we think we are, but it does not Reveal the particulars of God. And Paul is saying, now you Gentiles, you have some particulars. Now, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the prophets would try and help Israel see how foolish they were from running, by running from God. He would say, okay, so you would rather trade Creator God for the opportunity to go out into the woods and cut a tree down, bring it back home, whittle it into a statue, then bow down to it. He's like, do you not see the irony there? Like, You made that thing with your own hands and now you're worshiping it. Sometimes it takes people putting things into perspective to cause you to go, oh yeah, you're right. My idols really are powerless. They are things that I've set up to be things I want to worship because I know that we're made to worship. We're made to to give full worth to something and this is where the particular shifts and changes things for us, and this is what Paul says to the Gentile church. He's like, "You guys were worshiping idols, but now you know what God desires from you." You know, he he answers these questions. You know, what is God like? Well, Paul reveals that this God really does love these people so much so that he sent his son to die. What does he demand? He's not asking for you to work your way to him. He's asking you to believe him. How does he see me? Well, apparently he sees you as fully valuable because he gave his son up for you. What's his plan? To rescue a sinful people. Does he love me? Well, he says he does. How do I know? Well, he showed you through the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. What about the end? Well, because Christ raised from the dead, you can trust that he's got you from every moment forward. What does this mean for my life? What well, it means that I just become an offering. See, this is very different than a general knowledge or general spirituality. This is particular. And this is what we as Christ followers would say, God revealing himself through the scripture, through Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we, we do say that God reveals himself through nature. We absolutely say that. The Bible completely reveals that God reveals himself, but he doesn't reveal the particulars through nature. The scriptures begin to give us more of this story of God. And then fully, if we're going to know who God is, we have to look through the lens of Jesus Christ. He's getting very specific here. Now, in Romans chapter 1, we see another group of people included in this. And that's those who look around and choose to say there is no God. And in Romans chapter 1, forever since the world was created people have seen the earth and sky through everything god made they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature so they have no excuse for not knowing god yes they knew god but they wouldn't worship him as god or even give him thanks and they began to think up foolish ideas of what god was like as a result their minds became dark and confused claiming to be wise they tr- they, they instead became utter fools and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living god they worshiped idols made to look like mere mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. See, people who will look around and deny the existence of God, they're not refusing to worship, they're just worshiping themselves. See, humanity has always thought that humanity was the highest plane. And by God revealing Himself, He's helping us understand that we're not. So, worship is still going on. The idea of giving full worth to something is still happening, but it's just us giving full worship. To ourselves, So Paul is saying, you guys, you can't go back to this way of idol worship. But he's also saying something even bigger for some of us to consider. Paul lets us know that whether it's worshiping idols, which the Galatian church did before Paul, or turning to the law to save them, which is what the Galatian church is now doing, the severity level of damage is the same. Do we understand that? Like, the idea of worshiping an idol and the idea that is prevalent in the church that I obey the law better than someone is just as damning. It's me saying Christ is not valuable. It's me saying that Christ is not enough in both areas. So to be somebody who says that the law brings me completeness or makes me feel like I'm better off or gives me better standing with God, it's actually just as destructive as somebody who's worshiping an idol, somebody who's worshiping a false god, somebody who's bowing down to something that Paul says has no power. They both make little of Christ. And this is the destruction that Paul is trying to say, whoa, hold up, church. You run from this and everything goes down. In Paul's letter to the Colossian church, and I feel like this is a great picture of what Paul does so often. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, you were dead because of your sins. He doesn't say you're kind of almost out of breath. He doesn't say that you're hanging on by, by a thread. He doesn't say that you're almost dead. He says you were dead Because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, and this is what I love, in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And this is the picture that I've always seen as I've looked at the book of Colossians. It really is Paul taking this veil. And behind this veil are all those things that we think will bring us satisfaction. All those things we think will complete us. All those things that we think will bring us the rest and the peace that we want. And Paul pulls this veil back and goes, because of what Jesus has done, now you see all of this stuff is a lie. Trying to find your hope and your identity and who you are in all the things of this world. Jesus shamed him on the cross. He called them out for what they were, fake, false, farces. You can't go that route. You think you're going to live through this, but you're not going to. That's him pulling the curtain back and saying, guys, see them for what they really are. Because when a human looks on what Christ has done, and as as John talked about, affectionately remembering what Christ has done, not just informationally. Not just recalling some information, not just this general knowledge that Jesus died, but something in me responds and goes, I cannot believe that I would trade Jesus for these lesser things. And Paul's always calling the church to remember that when you trade Jesus for these lesser things, your foundation, whew, gone. Gone. In Galatians 5, verse 1, we're going to be taking a turn next week in the next two weeks. And Paul talks about what it looks like to be free, but this is his declaration. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. See, this is the type of freedom that speaks directly against the culture's idea of what it means to be free. The, culture, the culture's definition of what it means to be free is, I'm my own man, I'm my own woman. And what Paul is saying is, true freedom really comes knowing you belong to someone else. True freedom actually comes from knowing that God, because of your faith in Christ, will boldly proclaim, I know that one. I know him. I know her and in that we walk in freedom knowing that the law does not save us. Me being able to keep the ten commandments is not what saves me. Me pulling up my bootstraps and tying them up and doing All right, I can do this. No, you can't. What Christ has done counts for us in more ways than we will ever understand fully. This is where freedom comes. Freedom does not come because I obey the law better than someone else. Freedom does not come because I've done anything. It's, beca- it's come because Jesus has given his life in my place. And now through faith in Christ, I trust that Jesus' work is enough, and that's my daily bread every day. The temptation is to go, I got Jesus, but I got to do all this other stuff today. No, Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus, and then I work my way to God. It's not Jesus, my trust, my faith is in him. I live by faith, not by sight. And it all comes because of who we know. Jesus said very simply, you will know the truth and it will set you free. Do you know the reason in the story that Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats? Why weren't the goats allowed to enter? Because he did not know them. had a bunch of people saying, we know you, we know you, we know you. And they were trying to get in on their own terms, get in on their own ways. And Jesus said the goats were not allowed to enter because he did not know them. We're going to close this morning with some worship. And I'd love for you guys to, to try and imagine with me, if you can. Just go ahead and close your eyes. I know there'll be some of you who are like, I'm not closing my eyes for nothing. I'm going to look at you while you talk about this. I get it. I understand. But I just want you to imagine a road, a straight road, if you can, picture it. And then there's a very distinct fork in the road, and it goes two directions. Let's say the road on the left takes you to a mountain. And it's one of the mountains described in the scriptures in the Old Testament to Mount Sinai, where the law was given to Moses. Where the the to-do list is given to Moses. The task list is given to Moses. Moses. And let's say that that fork that goes to the right leads you to another mountain described in Scripture, Mount Calvary, where the cross of Christ, the body of Christ, hung on behalf of a sinful, broken, wicked people. And he yelled from that cross, It is finished. My question to you about those two roads is where do you run for comfort? Where do you run to find that you're free? Do you run to the, the actual the law that actually breaks us and we cannot keep? Or do you run to the other mountain where Christ finished the work? I believe this is a very real debate in the church in America. We feel like we comfort ourselves to know we're behaving better, so we run to this law that is crushing or do you wake up in the morning and go, I, I can't do this. But Christ, you did. Manna is not just a story of God's daily physical provision. It is a, it is a foreshadowing of the bread of heaven. Jesus being enough every day. This is how shocking the good news is. And so I will ask you which road do you run to to comfort yourself? Do you run to the to do lists, the tasks that you can accomplish, trusting in your sight? Or do you run to the other mountain, Calvary, where Christ finished the work by faith? you have become children of God. This morning as we respond, there's just gonna be a time to sit and to consider. And I'd ask that you would consider and you'd be honest with yourself because we know that there can be no change unless we are honest with ourselves, each other, and with God. And you just let the Lord do in you what he wants to do in this time. Lord, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for painting a clear picture of rescue that we are not able to live up to this task list. But Jesus, you did. You finished it perfectly. And I ask this morning that as your people, we would still ourselves enough to recognize where we're running. Do we run to live by sight or do we trust that Jesus is enough? And I thank you that one day, what we believe by faith, we will, we will experience by sight. It's in your name we pray.